The following sermon, entitled Christ's Saving Death for His Sheep, was preached on the evening of December 25th, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word tonight to John chapter 10. John 10, we will read the first 29 verses, and we do so in connection with Lord's Day 16 of the Heidelberg Catechism. John chapter 10, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers." This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which He spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before Me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By Me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture." The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth a wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is an hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. There was a division, therefore, again among the Jews, for these sayings. And many of them said, He hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. 
Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's house, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Thus far we read God's Word. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 16. Lord's Day 16. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble Himself even unto death? Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sin could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. Why was He also buried? Thereby to prove that He was really dead. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? That by virtue thereof, our old man is crucified, dead and buried with Him. That so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto Him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why is there added, He descended into hell, that in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ by His inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies in which He was plunged during all His sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. In God's good providence, we are up to Lord's Day 16 of the Heidelberg Catechism on Christmas Day. It's really quite appropriate. Some might disagree with that. Some might think, well, Lord's Day 16 is all about the death of Jesus Christ because Lord's Day 16 treats that section of the Apostles' Creed in which we confess to believe that He was dead, buried, and descended into hell. Teaching us that Jesus Christ died in every respect when it comes to death. And thus some might contend that, well, that message is not appropriate for Christmas Day. Because Christmas Day is about the birth of Jesus Christ. Christmas Day is about the glad tidings of great joy. It should be a festive celebration. And therefore, we not, ought not speak about His death on Christmas Day. But that type of thinking is altogether wrong. Because it fails to see the connection between the birth of Jesus Christ and the death of Jesus Christ. For you see, Jesus Christ did not make satisfaction for our sins. He did not pay the death debt for our sin simply by becoming a man. 
That's a part of His saving work, but it's not how He actually accomplished our salvation. But He was born into this world ultimately to die and thereby accomplish our salvation so that His birth and His death go together. And therefore, it's altogether appropriate. And we can even thank God tonight that in His providence, on the same Sabbath day in which we heard a sermon in the morning, celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. Now in the evening, we have a sermon on His death. For this reminds us of the great purpose why He came. He came to die for us. To die for His sheep so that we might have life. So with that in mind, we consider Lord's Day 16 tonight using as our theme, Christ's saving death for His sheep. First, we'll look at the necessity of His death. Second, at the beneficiaries, that is, those for whom He died. And then third, the benefits, the blessings that He earned by His death. The clear testimony of Scripture is that Jesus Christ died. He gave up His life. But that raises the question, why? Why was this necessary? And that's where the Heidelberg Catechism begins in Lord's Day 16. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble Himself even unto death? And the answer is, because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. Now, standing behind this answer is the biblical truth concerning death. That is, before we can get into talking about the death of the Son of God, we really have to talk about death itself. And there are three things that are relevant to tonight's sermon that Scripture teaches us concerning death. First, Scripture makes plain that death came into this world as the result of Adam's fall into sin. For you will remember that God told Adam while he was in the garden not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. He warned him that death is the punishment for disobedience. And as we know, Adam disobeyed. He transgressed that commandment of life, and therefore death entered into this world. Even as we read in Romans 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. So that what Scripture teaches us is that death was not a component of that original creation in its state of perfection. It wasn't an aspect of how God created the world in the beginning, but death came into this world on account of Adam's fall into sin. It's God's punishment against sin. That, first of all, is what Scripture teaches us. Second, Scripture teaches us concerning death that death has passed upon all men. That's the clear, explicit teaching of Romans 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So that what Romans 5, verse 12 is teaching us is that it wasn't just Adam who became subject to this punishment. 
but the whole of the human race. Death passed upon all men. We are all subject to this. And the reason for that is that Adam was our first parent. Adam was our representative head so that as Adam went, so the whole human race went. On account of his sin, he deserved death. And therefore, we too deserve death. And that means what we're talking about tonight is not just some abstract truth. This is not just some academic theology, but death is something every one of us must face, therefore. And we need to bear that in mind when we come to that. the third thing that Scripture teaches us about death. Namely, there are different aspects to it. Scripture teaches us first that death came into this world on account of Adam's sin. Second, it teaches us that every man must die, including you and I. And third, it teaches us what that death all includes, what it all involves. And there are really three different aspects to death. First, there is what we might call physical death. That is, the the separation of body and soul at the end of life. That's an component of death because of the way God created man. Genesis chapter 2 tells us that God created man. He, when God created man, He formed him out of the dust of ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And what that verse is teaching us is that God formed our physical bodies so that there's a material side to us but then He breathed into us the breath of life. He gave us souls. There's a spiritual side to each one of us. And that body and soul are bound. They're joined together. But at death, they're ripped apart. That's a component of physical death. And while it's true that Adam did not die in that sense of the word immediately when he transgressed God's commandment. That is, his body and soul were not ripped apart. Nevertheless, in that moment, he did become mortal. And what is more, the motions of death, the processes of death, started within Adam and Eve. Because that's a component of death. This physical death. This separation of body and soul. Second, and closely related, death includes being buried and having our bodies decompose. For God said to Adam in Genesis 3, verse 19, after the fall into sin, for out of it the dust wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. And what this is indicating is that after the body and soul are ripped apart, the body goes to the grave. It enters into that place of corruption where it it decomposes, it decays, and reaches the point where there's not even a form of a human anymore. That's a part of death. But though death includes the physical death, the separation of body and soul, though it includes the burial the returning to dust, the worst element is the third, namely the spiritual aspect. The death of the soul. It's really the heart of death and it's 
being separated from God. We sing that at times in Psalter number 203, to live apart from God is death. Death includes being the ob- becoming the object of God's wrath, knowing His just displeasure against our sins. And Adam certainly died in that respect. And we see that from his response. Immediately after he falls into sin, he, he goes and he hides himself from God. And we read of Scripture when God comes to him, Adam responding, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. That is, there was a, a fear and a sense of God's wrath that Adam had never experienced before that he knew now that's spiritual death. That's separation from God. And that's a part of the death that every one of us must die by nature on account of our sins. That very briefly is what Scripture teaches us about death itself. But this Lord's Day is not about death by itself. This sermon is about the death of the Son of God. And so now having considered death itself, we still have the question before us, why then did the Son of God have to die? Why did Jesus Christ have to die? Because after all, a previous Lord's Day taught us He had no sin. He did nothing wrong. There was no fault found in Him. So why then did Jesus Christ die? And now we come back to that answer and explain the answer in question answer 40. Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. What this is saying, He had to die in order to save us from our sins. For this Lord's Day speaks of Him making satisfaction. And that's language that the catechism used earlier in Lord's Days 5 and 6. How can we be received again into God's favor only by making satisfaction for our sins? Can we do that? No. But we need another to do it on our behalf. And He has to be truly man, perfectly righteous, and truly God. And then the catechism taught us that our mediator meets those qualifications. And now it's coming back to that and saying that by His death, He made satisfaction for our sins and that really no one else could do it. And this had to happen. God could not just sweep our sins under the rug. He could not just throw a towel over them. But satisfaction had to be made because of the justice and truth of God. That's where question and answer 40 begins. Because with respect to the justice and truth of God. In other words, if God does not punish sin, He ceases to be just. For God to tell Adam, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And then if there's no death that comes upon man, well, that makes God a liar. Then He's not the God of truth. And so for the sake of the justice and truth of God, and in order for us to be saved, satisfaction had to be made. And that's why Jesus Christ died. But now having gone through what Scripture teaches us about death. And especially that third point, that there are three different elements, aspects to death. That means if Christ is going to satisfy the justice of God, He had to die in all three respects. 
And praise be to God, He did. Because Jesus Christ died from a physical point of view. There was the painful rending of body and soul. That's the testimony of Scripture in Luke 23, verse 46, for example. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, He said, Father, into Thy hands I commend My Spirit. And having said thus, He gave up the ghost. Gave up the ghost means that His soul departed from His body and went into heaven, into the hands of His Father. While the body was left there on the cross. His body and soul had been ripped apart. And now certainly that does not mean that there was a separation between His human nature and His divine nature. Those two things are not what's being ripped apart. His humanity and His divinity stay united together so that though His body is in one place and His soul is in another place, the divine nature is nevertheless still united to each of them. But what's being ripped apart is Christ's human body and Christ's human soul. And ripped apart in such a way that they were truly in two two different locations. Christ endured that. But then He also endured having His body buried. That too is the testimony of Scripture. That after Jesus Christ died, Joseph of Arimathea came, requested the body, it was given to him, and he laid the body in a never-before-used sepulcher. The catechism asked why Was that a part of this? Question answer 41. Why was He also buried? And the answer given is thereby to prove that He was really dead. And now, certainly that includes that His burial was confirmation that His heart had stopped beating, that His lungs had stopped breathing. That's a part of the idea, but that's not the main idea. For the emphasis in the catechism is on that word really thereby to prove that He was really dead. And the point is, He endured this aspect of death too. It wasn't just that He was buried, but then His body... Sorry, it wasn't just that He died, but then His body was immediately taken up into heaven, transformed, made anew, but His body was likewise laid in a grave. He endured this aspect of death Two, He allowed His body to enter into that place of corruption where the body decomposes and returns to dust. So Christ died in that there was the painful rending of body and soul. Christ died in allowing His body to be buried. But then third, and most importantly, Christ also died spiritually. And that He became the object of God's wrath. He suffered the penalty, the punishment we deserve for our sin. And He did that especially at the cross. It's His own testimony when He said, after those three hours of darkness, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? That's death. From a spiritual point of view, for three hours, Jesus Christ lived apart from God in His experience. 
He did not know the favor of the Father. He only knew the wrath. And in that way, He endured the agonies and torments of hell. It's in that sense that He descended into hell. That's what the Catechism teaches us in question and answer 44. Why is there added He descended into hell? That in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ by His inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies in which He was plunged during all His suffering, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. It's that last part that's the key, that He did this especially at the cross. In other words, for the Apostles' Creed to include in it the fact that Jesus Christ descended into hell does not mean that after Jesus Christ died, He then went to the place known as hell. Jesus' body, Jesus' soul, never went to that location, but instead, He endured that on the cross, especially during those three hours of darkness. But now again, the point is, this means He died in every respect in order to make satisfaction for our sin and thereby accomplish our salvation. And while we are going to come to the blessed benefits of this saving death, still within this first point, it's worth seeing the wonder of this. For Jesus Christ's death was like no other death. And that's true on the one hand because of the voluntary nature of it. And that voluntary nature of it comes out in the passage that we read in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. And what this is teaching us is that is more than that Jesus willingly gave Himself over into the hands of the enemies. That's true. It's teaching us more than that Jesus willingly allowed the soldiers to crucify Him. That He did not put up a fight. That's also true, but that's not the point of the passage. Or at least that's not the main point. But instead, John 10, verses 17 and 18 is teaching us the astonishing truth that for Jesus Christ, His death was a conscious, willing, deliberate act of the will that makes it different than our death. We're not in control of our own death. It's not that, well, I decide to die right now and then I'm dead. But death swallows us up, as it were. Death overtakes us. But not with Jesus Christ. It's not the case that Jesus Christ held off as long as He could. He was trying to make it through, but then in the end, He couldn't hold out and death finally swallowed Him up. That's not how it worked. 
But Jesus Christ laid down His life by an act of the will. He consciously, willingly, actively gave up the ghost. And that's a wonder when you stop to think about it. But the wonder is still greater. On the one hand, the wonder is the the voluntary nature of His death. But on the other hand, the wonder of this is that we are talking about the death of the Son of God. That's the language we find in the Catechism in question and answer 40. Towards the end, it speaks of Him that satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. We are talking about the eternal Word, eternal Word made flesh. We're talking about the Prince of Life who could say, I am life. This is the Son of God. And yet we're talking about His death and doing so on the basis of Scripture. For Scripture itself puts it this strongly. It does so, for example, in Acts 20, verse 28, where we read that elders are to feed the church of God, which He, God, hath purchased with His own blood, so that we speak of the blood of God. And it's on that basis we can speak of the death of the Son of God. And now, to be sure, we have to understand that carefully this evening. For when we speak of the death of the Son of God, we are not teaching that Christ's divine nature perished. We are not in any way indicating that there was some change that took place in God that would be incorrect. And therefore, when we speak of the death of the Son of God, really, we need to add a couple of words, namely that He died according to His human nature. That's orthodox language. The Son of God died according to His human nature. But, having warned against going too far one way of saying, well, His divine nature perished, or there was a change in God, we must not go too far the other way, though either, and say that it was just His humanity that died. Rather than saying it was the Son of God who died according to His humanity. You see, the subject here is still the Son of God. That is, that is, it was not a something that died on the cross that day. It was a someone that died. And that's so crucially important that we maintain that because if it's not a someone, the Son of God dying then there's no value in the death of Jesus Christ. But because it was the Son of God who laid down His life according to His human nature, it is therefore a death of infinite value. A death whereby we are saved from all of our sins. So why did Jesus Christ have to die? The answer boils down to the to the fact that he saved us thereby. But now 
for whom did He do this? We've considered the necessity of His death, but who are the beneficiaries of His death? For whom did Christ lay down His life? And it's worth venturing into that question because that question has been debated throughout the entire history of the church. And a large part of the reason for the debate is that Scripture seemingly gives us two different sets of answers. And answers that appear on the surface to be at odds with each other. For in Scripture, when we look at passages that speak to for whom did Christ die, there is a set of passages that speak of Christ dying for all. For every man. For the world. That's what we find, for example, in 1 John 2, verse 2. And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christ died for the whole world. Hebrews 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. And then 1 Timothy 2, verse 6 says of Christ that He gave Himself a ransom for all. So that there are a set of Scripture passages that are telling us Christ died for all, for every man, for the whole world. But then when we continue looking at Scripture, we find other passages that very clearly indicate He died for a subset of humanity. And those passages include the birth announcement that we considered in part this morning. The angel came and told Joseph that Mary shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. This is the testimony of Jesus Christ Himself in Matthew 28, 20, verse 28, where He says, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. Many is different than all. Many is a subset. There's a lot of them, but it's still different than all. This is Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself that has died for it, that is, for the church. And perhaps the clearest passages of all in this respect are the ones that we read in John chapter 10, verse 11, for example. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd giveth His life for the sheep. Verse 15, I lay down My life for the sheep. And what all of this is showing us is that there are other passages of Scripture that clearly teach us that Christ died for a subset of humanity, for His people, for the church, for the sheep. And the question becomes, how are we to understand all this? How do we reconcile these different passages in which we have Christ dying for all, for the whole world, and Christ dying only for His sheep, for the church, for His people? Well, there have been many who have given wrong explanations when it comes to reconciling these passages. For example, there is the explanation of the theologian named Peter Lombard. Peter Lombard 
was a theologian of the 12th century who wrote a work entitled The Four Books of Sentences, where the word sentence refers to authoritative, authoritative statements concerning Scripture. And we mentioned Peter Lombard because this work, The Four Books of Sentences, became really the textbook on dogmatics for the Roman Catholic Church, so that when we're talking about Peter Lombard, we're really talking about the whole of the Roman Catholic Church. So what did he teach there? Peter Lombard taught that Jesus Christ died for both believers and unbelievers, but that He did so in a different manner for each. The classic statement in Lombard's work is this, where he says, quote, Christ offered Himself for all men as it respects the sufficiency of price, but only for the elect as it regards the efficacy thereof because He effected and purchased salvation only for those who were predestinated. End quote. Embedded in that quote is a distinction that he's making between the sufficiency of Christ's death and the efficacy. Christ's death as Christ died for all men, the whole world, when it respects the sufficiency of His death. That is, He he made sufficient payment for everyone to have salvation. But He died only for the elect when it comes to the efficacy that is the application of it so that it's only the elect who are saved. So that what Peter Lombard is teaching is that Christ died for all men. The whole world, every single individual, head for head. And now it's on man to believe. It's on man to make that death effectual. That was the teaching of Peter Lombard. And I trust many, if not most of you, recognize that's Arminianism. That's exactly what the Arminians were teaching in the 17th century in the years leading up to the Synod of Dort. The Arminians were teaching Jesus Christ died for everyone. His death was sufficient for every last single person. He thereby made salvation possible for all men, for the whole world. And now it's on man to believe by an act of his own free will to make a decision for Jesus Christ. That's how one is saved. And as far as those passages that speak of him dying for the sheep, the church, the elect, well, you may only be referred to as an elect or know that you are elect if you believe and persevere to the end. That's the condition that man must fulfill in order to be one of God's elect. That's the teaching of Arminianism. And that's the wrong way to understand these two sets of passages. And we know it's wrong because it's out of harmony with the message of Scripture as a whole. Because the overall message of Scripture is the beautiful, the wonderful truth of God's sovereignty in our salvation. That's the teaching of Jonah 2, verse 9. Salvation is of the Lord. That is, God is the source of salvation. 
He is the author of salvation. He's the subject of salvation. The one doing the saving. And He's the the agent of salvation. The one who accomplishes it. This is the teaching of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And the problem with the theology of Peter Lombard and the Arminians who followed after him is that their teaching runs contrary to this overarching message concerning God's sovereignty in salvation. Because for Peter Lombard and for the Arminians, salvation is really dependent on man. Upon his own choice. And his own perseverance in that choice. So we've noted two sets of Scripture passages. Some seemingly teaching, saying clearly Christ died for all, for the world. And others saying He died for a subset of humanity. We've looked at one set of explanations and said not that. But we still need to reconcile, bring these passages together. So what's the proper understanding? Well, The proper understanding takes as its starting point those passages in which we read of Christ dying for the church, for His people, for His sheep, that is, for His elect. Those whom God chose in eternity to be His people, the body and bride of Christ. And from there, we take into account the many passages of Scripture that clearly teach us that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. That whosoever believes in Jesus Christ shall have everlasting life. And we put those passages together and we recognize that all those whom God chose in eternity, in time He gives the gift of faith. He works in them faith so that we might believe in Jesus Christ. And then when it comes to those passages that speak of Christ dying for all, for the world, we understand those passages to be indicating well, that means Christ died for all different kinds of men. For not only Jews, but also for Gentiles. From people throughout the whole wide world. That is the Reformed, which is to say, biblical understanding. And now it's so crucially important that you understand. It's not, well, Peter Lombard and the Arminians have their view, and we have our view, and well, who really knows who's right? Why make such a big deal of this? Can't we just say they have their view, we have our view, and agree to disagree? No. Because the reality is that Scripture demands the Reformed understanding. Scripture itself makes very clear this is the right way to reconcile these two passages. And that's true for two reasons. That's true on the one hand because of the passages that clearly teach us that it's God's decree of election that governs whether or not someone believes. That's the teaching, for example, of Acts 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the Word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Notice that language. It does not say, as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. That is chosen, therefore, on the basis of their believing. But it 
It puts it the other way around. As many as were ordained to an eternal life, chosen in eternity, they're the ones who believed that His election governs the gift of faith. This is the teaching of John 10, verses 26 and 27. Jesus says to those who did not believe, but ye believe not, because ye are not of My sheep. As I said unto you, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. Why did some not believe? Because they were not His sheep. They were not chosen in eternity. And what this is teaching us is that it's God's decree of election that stands behind whether or not someone believes. That demands starting with election and moving from there to the gift of faith. But then the other thing that indicates that the Reformed understanding is the proper, correct one, is the historical background and setting in which those other passages were written. Why does Scripture make such a big deal of Christ died for all, for every man, for the whole world? Well, because the thinking in that day of so many was that Jesus Christ died only for the Jews. Only for ethnic Israel. And therefore, Scripture has to make a point. The writers of Scripture had to emphasize, no, it's not just the Jews, but it's the Jews and the Gentiles. It's broader than just one ethnic people group. But Jesus Christ died for all in the sense of all kinds of men. He died for the world in the sense of people from throughout the whole world. Every nation, tribe, and tongue. So that's a historical background. It's the the setting in which these writers are composing their letters and, and making these statements that then helps us to understand this is the right explanation. It's not that Christ died for every single man head for head making salvation possible for all men. But He died for all kinds of men. That's how we are to understand those two sets of passages that explain to us for whom Christ died. And it's crucially important that we have this right understanding. Again, this is not just theology for the sake of theology. This is not just a cold, abstract truth, but on the one hand, Christ's glory is at stake in all of this. Why do we make such a point that Christ died only for the elect? Because we are concerned about the glory of Jesus Christ. Because if what Peter Lombard and the Arminians say is true, He is not much of a Savior, is He? Because He did not actually save. All He did was make salvation possible and now it's up to man. It's dependent on man to believe and to persevere to the very end. And you see, that strips Christ of His glory. The Arminians like to say that the Reformed limit the death of Jesus Christ when the reality is that if anyone is limiting the death of Jesus Christ in the power of it, It's the Arminian who says he died for all men but only made salvation possible. 
And we reject that because the truth of Scripture is that Christ actually saves. His death is efficacious. It accomplished the thing He intended to accomplish. And that's the salvation of all of His people. You see, we don't throw out that little word all. We don't sweep that word all under the rug and say we'll just kind of ignore that it's there. No, that's not our view. We say look at the beauty of that word all. Christ's death accomplished every one of their salvation so that not one is lost. All of His elect are brought to glory because His death was the payment for all of their sins. And that's a glorious Savior. That's a Savior worth worshiping and praising for all eternity, saying, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. So it's because we're concerned about the glory of our Savior that we make a point of this. But then on the other hand, it's also because of the assurance of the believer. Because if what Peter Lombard and the Arminian says is true, there's no assurance. Because think about it. According to them, Christ could die for you. Did die for you. But you could still perish. So that there is no assurance whatsoever by looking to the cross of Jesus Christ. And there's no assurance at all because salvation therefore depends on man's believing and man's persevering to the end. That is a doctrine of doubt. But the truth of Scripture that Christ died for His sheep, for His people, for His elect, and He sovereignly, efficaciously saves them thereby, that gives assurance Because it means He actually saved. And I can therefore look to the cross and know that all my sins are forgiven and the the penalty, the punishment, death itself has been endured. And that brings us to the benefits of Christ's saving death for His sheep. The benefit, first of all, is that the child of God Need not fear death. And what a blessed benefit that is. Because unless the Lord comes very soon, every one of us in this sanctuary will die one day. Death is ever looming before us. We walk in the valley of the shadow of death, but yet we need not fear. We need not fear any aspect of death. We need not fear spiritual death. That is, we need not fear the wrath of God coming upon us. The child of God does not need to worry, am I going to go to purgatory when I die? Do I have to to pay the decimal? Am I going to go to hell when I die? 
Because Christ endured the agonies, the torments of hell. He endured the the spiritual death that we deserve so that there is no spiritual death at all for the child of God. Nor do we need to fear physical death. And that's true, even though we must still die. Because that death has been changed. It's been transformed. It's not punishment. It's not the penalty anymore, but it's simply the passageway passageway whereby we are brought to heaven. And that's what the Catechism is teaching us in question and answer 42. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? So it's affirming we must die, but it then answers our death is not a satisfaction for our sins. It's not God punishing us. But instead, it's only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. So for the child of God, death is the chariot, the whirlwind, whereby our souls are carried up to heaven. That's not something to fear. But nor do we need to be afraid of being buried. Apart from Christ, going to the grave is unsettling. It's not a pleasant thought. But because Jesus Christ went to the grave, the grave too has changed. Apart from Christ, the grave is like a a prison cell. It's like a dungeon. But because Christ went to the grave and sanctified the grave, He, He changed the grave so that instead of that coffin representing a prison cell, a dungeon... That coffin is now a bedchamber. It's a place of rest where the believer sleeps until Jesus Christ comes again. As Zacharias or Sinus put it, one of the authors of the Heidelberg, comment, Heidelberg Catechism, Christ, quote, has sanctified our graves by His own burial so that they are no longer graves to us, but chambers and resting places in which we may quietly repose until we are again raised unto life. End quote. I love those words. Quietly repose. You do not quietly repose in a dungeon, in a prison, but you do in a bedchamber. We need not fear the grave or any other aspect of death because Jesus Christ has died for us. That, first of all, is the benefit. Second, the benefit includes that we now have an answer to our greatest temptation. Doubting our salvation and still worrying whether God God's wrath is still upon us. And we use that language of the greatest temptation because that's the language of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question answer 44. Why is there added He descended into hell? That in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this and then what follows. It speaks of our greatest temptations. That is, the assaults of the devil 
whereby He tries to make us fear that we are still the objects of God's wrath. He comes to us with His accusations. His arrows. And He knows well how to aim them. Look at all your sins. Look at how many different sins you've fallen into, child of God. And think about how many times you've committed that one particular sin over and over and over again. You really think God can forgive you again? You really think you're going to go to heaven? There's no way. He doesn't love you. His love is clean gone on account of all your sins. You stand exposed to the wrath of... That's what the devil says. And sometimes those arrows find their mark. And we are thrown into the, doubt, into the pit of doubt. But now the benefit of the death of Christ is we have an answer to that. That's the point of the catechism. That in my greatest temptations, I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus, by His inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies in which, he plunged during, in which He was plunged during all His sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. We have an answer to the devil. Yes, devil, you're right. That's what I deserve on account of my own sin. But you're forgetting Jesus Christ died for those sins. Devil, you're forgetting that He he paid the entire debt. That there is now no condemnation for me because I am in Christ. And therefore, I need not fear. I need not doubt. But I can have the assurance, the confidence. I will be brought to glory. Because no man can pluck me out of my Savior's hands. Assurance. That's the benefit of the cross of Jesus Christ for the believer. And third and finally, the benefit that comes out here in the Catechism is that we are thus delivered from the power and dominion of sin. First, we need not fear death. Second, we have an answer in our greatest temptations. Third, we are delivered from the power and dominion of sin. And that's question answer 43. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? That by virtue thereof, our old man is crucified, dead and buried with Him. That so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto Him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The catechism here is drawing from such passages as Romans 6, verse 6, where we read, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that is, with Christ, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. One of the benefits of the death of Jesus Christ is that I need not serve sin anymore. This is the teaching of Galatians 6, verse 14. Fourth and fifth graders, you recognize that, right? Galatians 6, verses 
Verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. This was your memory verse, 4th and 5th graders. And we had to talk about it because we weren't really sure what it meant, but God forbid that I should glory. Ah, boast. What do I boast in? The cross of Jesus Christ. For that word save is not talking about Him saving us, but accept. But God forbid that I should glory save. That is, accept in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because by His death, the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. That is, I'm dead to the world. I don't have to go along with them anymore. I don't have to serve them anymore. That is the power and the dominion of sin has been broken. Whereas I was a slave to sin, it was the only thing I could do and wanted to do because of the death of Jesus Christ that's changed. Been set free from that. And I've been given a new life. The life of Jesus Christ. So that I've been set free to serve Him. I'm alive unto God. Liberated. And therefore able to serve Him. It's quite wonderful that on Christmas Day, when we commemorate the birth of our Savior, that we've also been given opportunity to celebrate His death. Because as His sheep, there are so many benefits for us. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for the saving death of our Savior Jesus Christ. Strengthen our faith by Thy Word. And help us now to live unto Thee, our God, out of thankfulness for this salvation. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.